Okay, now we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians 7. And before we dive into 1 Corinthians 7, let me say this. Normally in our services, I have somebody come up and they read the text. We're going to take 1 Corinthians 7 in two halves. So we'll do the first half today. We'll do the second half next week. I didn't, I intentionally avoided doing a scripture reading this morning. So we are going to read it in just a second. But I didn't have someone read it early and here's why. The text we're about to read in 1 Corinthians 7 is a text that produces different responses in different individuals. And I can just guarantee you before we even open it together and read it, that depending on your life, depending on what you've experienced in your life, depending on the situation you're currently in, or maybe the situation that you see on the horizon, the way you hear this text is going to settle in your heart in different ways. For some of you, it's going to make you mad. For some of you, it's going to make you sad. For some of you, it's going to be heavy. For some of you, you're going to be like, I don't understand why anybody has a problem with this. This is no brainer, right? Some of you, this may roll off like water on a duck's back, but for others of you, it's a heavy text. It's a text that has historically and uh, unfortunately been used sometimes by evangelicals as a weaponized passage of scripture to hurt people. And and we want to, I just want to say out of the gate that there is nothing in this text that was intended to be used as a weapon to hurt other people. There is nothing in this text that was used to, uh, that was intended to be used as a way to, you know, push other people down and raise other people up or to create undue pain. That isn't what Paul's aiming at. We're at a place in the letter to Corinth where Paul is sort of making a transition and he says himself in the first verse of of chapter 7 that now he's going to respond to the things about which they wrote. Now, unfortunately for us, we don't have their letter, right? So you think about pen pals or you think about correspondence, what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 7 and following is his response to things that they said in a letter that we don't have. We don't have that letter. So we don't know. We have to kind of guess. What were they asking? What were they saying? There are some commentators who will say that they feel like Paul will now begin to be answering their questions, but there are others who are just as confident that he's not so much answering their questions as he is questioning their answers. That in some ways what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 7 and following is he's responding to things, not that they asked, but rather things that they stated or things that they intend to do that he wants to push back on and say, I see how you're trying to live out the gospel. I see how you're trying to live out your discipleship, but I'm not sure that the path you've chosen is the best one or the right one. So let me give you some advice. It's important to note in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that much of what he says he frames as his opinion and as his advice as opposed to the law. So there are lots of places in the section we'll read today where he says, this is how I feel about this, or this is what I wish, or this is what I think. So we have to hear it coming from Paul's guts in some ways, but recognizing he's trying to, he's trying to help them live out the kingdom in their context in the first century in a, in a city, Corinth, that was uh, sexually promiscuous and perverse in many ways. We've already talked about uh, incest in 1 Corinthians 5. We talked about prostitution and the frequency with which even followers of Jesus were frequenting prostitutes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now we get to 1 Corinthians 7 and he's going to lean into some of the things that they have either asked or said. And we don't, we don't know which, but we try and frame up what we can know. In his responses, we try and sort of make our best guess as to what they said. But here's my point in the preamble. My point is, I want you, as we read the text this morning, I want to read the first 16 verses. As we read it, I want you to try and hear it, not from your perspective, but from the perspective of the person sitting behind you. Or the person sitting across the aisle from you. Or the person sitting next to you. I want you to try and think about how these 16 verses 
are heard in the life of someone who is recently divorced or someone who's desperate to be married and yet isn't married or someone who is, has been married and lost their marriage or, uh, you know, there, there are a variety of different things she'll speak to. And what happens a lot of times in a text like this is we read it and we go, yeah, this doesn't feel that bad to me. And we miss the fact that for the person sitting in front of us or behind us or across the row, the, the weight of this can stir up grief and anger and sorrow. I want us to be able to hear it with ears for the breadth of who is in this place, the breadth of experience, the breadth of understanding, the breadth of desire, the breadth of desperation. I want you to read it with the ears of your fellow man instead of just yours. Does that make sense? So let's try to do that together and then we'll sort of unpack it as we can. First Corinthians chapter seven, starting in verse one says this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, now breathe, right? Breathe a little bit, right? You feel it. Can you feel it as we read through it? Can you hear it with somebody else's ears? It, it could, could agitate you. There are several things in this that could sort of stir you up. I want to walk through it just bit by bit and sort of explain what he's pointing at and so that you can see the theme and the overarching emphasis of what he's saying. He starts by saying, I want to reply to something you said. And then I believe what we see there is a quote out of their original letter. There are some people who will say that the second phrase is actually a quote from him. But if that's true, and it might be, if that's true, it doesn't really make sense with everything else he then says, right? So I actually think what he's doing is he's quoting. And in the ESV translation, they actually put that second phrase in quotes. The reason they do that is because we're assuming he's stating back to them something they've already said. So you can almost imagine Paul at his writing desk with their letter on the left side and his letter that he's writing on the right side. And he looks at the things they've said and then he responds to them, right? So he says, I want to respond to what you said in your letter that it is good for a man not to touch a woman or what that means 
means, and the ESV translates it, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's like, I, I, need, to, I need to push back on that, right? He says, I want to respond to it. I get that what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in your day and age, right? In Corinth, which is sexually promiscuous and perverse, and everybody's sleeping with everybody, and there's temple prostitutes, and that seems like a normal thing, and there is all of this corruption. I get that some of you, in your mind, and in your desire to honor Christ, have made a decision, but I think maybe you've made a mistake, he says. In fact, he'll say, I know you've made a mistake. And the mistake that he's pointing out, and we know this because of what he says in verses 2 through 5, is that some of the married people who had become Christians, right, after being married, they had become Christians, they decided that in their pursuit of holiness, that the best way forward would be to become celibate in the midst of their marriage, right? Because of their followership of Christ, they decided, you know what? Sex is perverted in the world, and the best thing for me to do is focus on Jesus and stop having sex. But that creates quite a dilemma for the partner in that marriage, right? You can imagine how, I mean, imagine the tension that the partner's already feeling, particularly if it's an, if it's an unbeliever. You've got two unbelieving people living in Corinth, going to parties, sleeping with whoever they want, doing whatever they want, right? And then all of a sudden, one of them, the husband or the wife, hears about Jesus and gives their life to Jesus, decides to be a follower of Christ, comes home and starts to live in accordance with obedience to Jesus and his commands, that's already going to be disruptive in their home, right? So I want you to feel that existing tension and then imagine the conversation when that husband or that wife comes home and says, you know what? I've thought about it and I think the only way to really please God in our marriage is for us to stop sleeping together. Just imagine the kind of conversation that ensues after that, right? Paul says, you've determined that it's a good idea to to not touch a woman, but, but what Paul would point at here is that that's part of what marriage is about. In fact, we can go all the way back to Genesis, which we studied not too long ago. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord himself said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, right? He forms the woman, he forms them to be together. Paul is making the point here that that emphasis on celibacy inside of marriage is inappropriate, right? Not only because it's inappropriate for the relationship they're in, but also for the ongoing temptation outside of their marriage to sexual immorality. We talked a few weeks ago about the fact that sexual immorality defined by the Bible is any kind of sexual intimacy that happens outside of marriage, right? Any kind of sexual intimacy that happens outside of marriage. And what he's saying is, inside of marriage, there is appropriate sexual intimacy, right? Whether they're believers or not believers, there's appropriate sexual intimacy. And when one person abstains from that, they create the danger of temptation because that person is desirous of sexual intimacy and they're not going to be able to, to find it in their marriage. And there are going to be lots Lots of opportunities then for them to become sexually immoral, sexually immoral outside of the confines of their marriage, right? I remember uh, in 1996, I was at a, a Christian concert, big Christian concert in October of 96 in Phoenix, Arizona at the America West Arena, which is where the Suns play. And I went up to the concourse level and I was kind of looking at all the stuff they're selling. They had t-shirts and a bunch of other things. And I walked past this table and there's a young woman at the table and she goes, sir, sir, come here, come here. And uh, so I walk over and she goes, hey, I, I am, I don't remember what her name is. My name's Courtney and, and I, uh, I am with True Love Waits. Have you heard of True Love Waits? And I was like, yes, I have heard of True Love Waits. And she goes, well, I, I hope you believe in abstinence. You know, and I was like, I, I definitely do. And she says, well, have you signed our pledge? And I said, no, I haven't. And to be honest with you, I don't have a ton of time. I'm just trying to, I was trying to check the t-shirt table. And then she goes, sir, I don't think you understand how important it is 
to abstain from sexual activity before you're married. The Bible's really clear about this. It's actually a really important thing. And, you know, we, we, we're actually trying to get a million people to fill out a commitment card and we're going to put them on posts and we're going to put them on the, on the White House lawn, you know. And she's like, well, I'm just trying to get as many people who believe in what we're doing to sign the abstinence pledge. She's like, please, before you leave, would you be willing to sign it? And I was like, I, I really don't, I don't know. I, she goes, just, I'm, she's like, I'm begging you. If, you. if you don't have anything against this, you should sign it. I was like, all right. So I filled out her card, you know? And so she tore off the little piece that I was supposed to take and she took her part. And then I said to her, I said, you know, Courtney, uh, how, do you have any recommendations for how I explain this to my wife? And uh, she goes, what? And I was like, yeah, I got married in May. And I said, I really, I think this is really going to bother her. You know, honestly, that I've pledged myself to abstinence. I think that's probably a thing she would have wanted me to talk to her about at first. And this girl, Courtney, is like, and she's like a teenager. So she's like, why did you sign it? You shouldn't have signed it. It's not for you. You didn't tell me you were married. And I was like, well, you didn't ask me, honestly. But I don't know. I mean, I guess I'll just, uh, I'll just abstain because I gave my word, you know. And she took it and she tore it up. <laughs> so that was nice of her, right? But. The emphasis there wasn't paying attention to to what's going on in a marriage. And in that case, she didn't know, right? In this case, look at what Paul says. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says in verse 2, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Don't miss here, by the way, the singularity of this. Uh, He's talking about a husband for a wife and a wife for a husband. He is making uh, polygamy outside of the bounds, for a Christian marriage, right? There is one appropriate partner for sexual intimacy, and that is your spouse, and that's it, right? So he says, uh, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, right? So I get the fact that for some of you in this day and age, this idea of somebody else having rights over your body is probably probably a little bristling, right? That maybe feels a little like nobody owns me, man. I'm American. I'm free. I do what I want to do. Slow down for a second and let's just think about this and let's think about what he's saying. What he is not saying in the text is that you have a right, uh, you have a right to demand something from someone else. So here's one of the ways this text has been weaponized. And there may be some of you, even as I'm teaching right now, who are thinking like, I can't wait to get home today and show this to my husband or show this to my wife. And so they know they have to have sex with me because God says they have to, right? Slow down, right? Slow down. I want you to see that the, the way in which Paul frames this is not about what you deserve or what your rights are in, in marriage. Instead, the way he frames it is your responsibility to someone else with your sexuality, your regard for someone else in sexuality, not your rights. It's kind of like sometimes we end up flipping the golden rule. You know, famously, the golden rule says, uh, do unto others what you'd have them do unto you. And you always hear people that are like, hey, you should treat me the way you want to be treated. But that's not what the golden rule says, right? The golden rule says you should lay down your life for other people. This is the very same thing. What Paul is saying is for you to withhold or for you to insist on celibacy in your marriage is to withhold something from someone if they're desirous of it that they have a right to. Because when you get married, your body no longer belongs to you. Your body belongs to your spouse. Your body belongs to your spouse. And everything he says here in verses 2 through 5 is in, is in the mindset of sexuality as a form of service. Like everything else in our life, 
Everything else in our life is given to us for the good of others and the glory of God. Your sexuality is no different. And that is a a paradigm shift from what our world says. What our world says is that your sexuality is for your enjoyment. And it's for you to explore and to experience and and to figure out all the different possibilities, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that just like your sense of touch and your sense of sight and your sense of smell, all of your different gifts and all of your different things, that God has given you those for his glory and the good of another. Sexuality is one way in which, in the context of marriage, you have the opportunity to serve somebody else. A passage I almost always read in wedding ceremonies that nobody wants to hear at a wedding ceremony is in Ephesians 5, right? Most people at their wedding ceremony, they want to hear the like, Love is patient, love is kind, love is uh, like a bumblebee or whatever. They want to hear that thing. Uh, Ephesians 5 says this, and I read it every time I officiate a wedding. It says this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When I read that passage in a wedding ceremony, when I'm officiating, I always say, look, this isn't the thing you want to hear because what you're thinking is I'm getting married to improve my life. I'm getting married to this beautiful woman or this incredible man and it's going to make my life so much better. It's going to be more fun and we're going to go on adventures and I'm going to experience all these things and it's just going to, it's going to make my life better in every way. But that isn't the mindset in which to enter into marriage. The mindset in which to enter into marriage is I have found someone that I want to give my life away to and serve forever until I'm dead. If you think about marriage as a modification or a way to improve your life, you will get divorced. And over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And it's because there's a mindset that says, I can't wait to get what I can get out of this. But if you go into a marriage with the mindset of Christ serving and dying for the church, if you go into a marriage saying, you know what, I've met this man or I've met this woman and I want to spend the rest of my life serving them with everything I am and everything that I have, that's a marriage that will survive and that will last. It's a marriage sexuality by extension is about service. It's about sacrifice. It's a picture or an archetype of Christ in the church who laid down his life for his bride, the church, right? That's the picture. So, so Paul back to first Corinthians chapter seven says, I see that in your desire to follow God, you've decided that you've decided that in your marriages, you're going to abstain from sex, but you're not thinking about the fact that your body doesn't belong to you. You don't have the right to make that choice. Your body belongs to someone else, right? It belongs to someone else. Now here's the radical thing for the first century. In the first century, women were considered property many times. In fact, some of the people who were married that he was talking to, they would have been in a marriage that was arranged by someone else that they had no say in. Some of the people that he was talking to would have been in slave marriages, which actually could have been interrupted at any time by their masters, right? There are all kinds of of contexts of marriage in the first century And none of them really had to necessarily do with love the way we think about marriage today. And it would have been radical. It is radical for him in that time to not just say the wife's body belongs to the husband, that everybody sort of would have gone along with that because it was their culture. 
But for Paul to take the step and say, not only does the wife's body belong to the husband, but in the same way and with the same power and at the same percentage, the husband's body belongs to the wife and they have to serve one another. Nobody was saying that in the first century, right? That is an unheard of and a radical idea. Now today, that's pretty common. We think about equality in marriage and in gender all the time. But at the time for him to say, the husband is, 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 owns the wife's body and the, the wife owns the husband's body would have been outrageous. And he does come in here and say, you, you owe this to one another to not deprive one another, except in one, in one situation. He says in verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I want you to see that when he's talking about sexuality within marriage, he's always talking about it as serving the other person. It's always in service of the other. Your body is in service of the other person. And he says there is a context in which you can deprive each other of your conjugal rights. And that context is only when there is a mutual agreement. Once again, we see equality in 1 Corinthians 7 that was unheard of in the first century, right? upon mutual agreement, and even then, it's for a very specific purpose, for devotion to prayer, right? For the pursuit of the glory of God, you can, the two of you, agree to abstain from sexual relations for a time. He doesn't give us a length of time, but he does say clearly, you must then rejoin in in your conjugal responsibilities to one another, right? Think about the beauty of this. What what he is emphasizing in, in the first century is mutual ownership, Mutual enjoyment, which is unheard of for women in the first century. Mutual obligation. This is radical here. It's radical what he's saying. He's saying you you can't decide to tell your spouse that because of Jesus, you're not going to have sex with them anymore. That doesn't work. He says all of this so that you can avoid temptation. He doesn't talk here about procreation. He doesn't talk about affection. He, He talks about this responsibility and he's pointing to the type of Christ in the church. Now he goes on while he's thinking about this. He goes on from here. And he says this in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is an important statement too. And I want you to hear it. It's him talking out of his guts, right? So he's just said this thing to married couples about the fact that celibacy has no place in marriage, right? Even spiritual celibacy, that's just a form of abuse. So he says to them, hey, you, you've, got to, you've got to give yourself away to your partner. And then he says, I've got to be honest with you. When I'm talking about this, I kind of wish everybody was like me. Right? Now, we don't have specifics on what Paul's situation was. People take lots of different guesses. So some people will say that Paul potentially was never married. And then maybe the question poses in your mind, like, why is this unmarried guy giving married couples advice? That seems dumb, but whatever. So some people say he was never married. I think it's more likely that he was married. Uh, and this is just us guessing again. I think it's more likely that he was married and either his wife left him when he became a Christian, when he was converted on the road to Damascus, right? That either she left him because of his faith. He talks about that in a second, or it's possible that, that he's widowed and she died. I, I don't, I don't know what happened, but he is single. And here's what he's saying. He goes, we're talking about all this stuff in marriage, but I got to be honest with you. There's a part of me that just wishes everybody was like I am. Now, let me be clear with you. What he's not saying is I just wish everybody was single. He's not saying that singleness is somehow better than being married. In fact, in this very same phrase, he will say, you know what? This is my wish because it works for me, but each of us have different gifts. The implication of that is that marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift, right? That all of this is the thing God calls us to. And what he's pointing at is that none of us are in exactly the same boat. 
right? We don't all approach this the same way. And the church historically has made a mistake. The church, I think, has made a mistake historically by elevating marriage to be the pinnacle of spiritual success. And for people who are single, whether they want to be married or they don't, many times they feel like castoffs in the church because we've, we've elaborated this in such a way as to say, like, people who get married are really doing the thing that God wants them to do. And if you're not married, you're deficient somehow. Paul says that isn't true. Paul says, I wish that everybody was like me. And what he's talking about when he talks about singleness is not just singleness flat. He's talking about being single and satisfied, right? Single and satisfied. I don't know if in your life you have met some of these folks. I certainly have met many of them. I've got some in my own family, right? Who, who were never married and who didn't ever want to be married and had no desire to be married because they were called to singleness and they knew it. I think something interesting that happens uh, sometimes with younger people, especially as they'll be like, oh man, I really hope God hasn't called me to celibacy. I really don't want him to call me to that, Pastor. What am I going to do? And the thing I always say to people when they're worried about being called to celibacy is if you're worried about it, you're not called to celibacy. Right? If you're worried about it, you're not called to that. God is not calling people to celibacy who were miserable their whole lives. It's just not the case. Paul, what Paul's affirming here is it's easier to be a single person who is single and satisfied with that than it is to be someone. And he'll say this. So let's read on just a little bit further. He says in six, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another to the unmarried and the widows. I say it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He's not condemning widows and unmarried people who want to have sex, right? This isn't him looking down at them. It's him saying, we're not all the same. We all, we're all different. We have different experiences. We have different desires. We have different things. So look, if you're unmarried or a widow and you can remain single and you really don't care one way or another, I will tell you what, that will open up your life to serve God exclusively and to be devoted to him. Further on, we'll look at this next week, uh, but in seven, chapter 7, verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He's saying in this opening section here in in verses six and following, if you are single and satisfied, that's actually great. Because then your attentions aren't divided and you can devote yourself, including your sexuality, you can devote that to the service of God, right? But if you burn with passion and if you have a desire to be in a sexual relationship, which if that's you, you know that's you, then get married. It's better for you to get married than it is to just be churning all the time. And the only place that is appropriate for sexual intimacy, again, is inside marriage. So he says marriage is perfect for people who were wired to want to be married, right? If you're burning with passion, you should get married, he says. Now, he he goes on just a little bit further here. Verse 10. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Here's one of the places in this section where he makes it very clear that he's no longer sharing with us his opinion. He's been sharing his opinions. Now he's saying, "Here, here I'm quoting something from Jesus. He says, if you guys in Corinth, in your pursuit of trying to follow Jesus, are thinking it would be a good idea to get divorced 
from your spouse, either a spouse who isn't as spiritually mature as you or a spouse you don't like or a spouse who wants to have sex all the time or doesn't ever want to have sex. If you're thinking about divorcing your spouse, let's remember what Jesus says. He says here in verses 10 through 12, he says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Full stop, right? This is hard. This is a hard section, especially for people who are going through divorce, who have been through divorce. Because we'd love for there to be some wiggle room on this. But let let me be clear about a couple of things. The first one is this. The Bible and Jesus specifically are very clear that divorce is not God's plan. Because marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ in the church and the commitment between Christ and the church is never dissolved, it's never broken, it's never walked away from, it's never unraveled. Because that commitment is never unraveled, divorce is outside of the bounds of what God wants for us in marriage. It's not a thing that he's ever desirous of. It's, it, it, it's wrong, right? I know that that's going to hurt you. Listen to what I say next. While we believe that divorce is wrong because it ruins the type of Christ in the church, we also recognize that it's not more wrong than other wrong things. And I will tell you, being the child of a divorced couple and knowing, having lots of friends and people on our staff who are divorced, I have not met a single divorced person in my life, 48 years, who thinks divorce is fun. I haven't met anybody who was like, you know what, my divorce is awesome. I can't wait to have another one. Like everybody I know who's gone through divorce feels like their heart gets crushed and ripped out of their chest and thrown down and stomped on and walked all over. And, and, and it's, it's horrible. I don't know anybody who doesn't think divorce is horrible. So when we look at the Bible and it says, don't get divorced, it can feel like that's judgy. But what that's saying is this isn't good for you, right? It's not what marriage is meant to be. The reality is that there are lots of things in our broken and fallen world that aren't good for you and aren't meant to be. And that form of brokenness isn't any worse than any other. It's crazy to me how often divorced people become like enemy of the state in evangelical churches. That somehow seems like the worst sin ever. And it just, the Bible just doesn't paint it like that. The Bible doesn't raise divorce to anything worse than anything else that all of us are doing every day. It says it's not what's right, right? It says it's not good. But guess what? Our lives constantly are full of this brokenness until such time as we are healed. So here's what I'm advocating. If you are divorced, hear me say it. God is crazy about you and loves you. He sees you and is with you. If you're in the middle of a divorce and you're wrestling with it and you're struggling with it, God loves you and is with you. And so am I. And so is this church. We see you and we care about you. And we know that, that, that God doesn't want divorce any more than you want divorce. But there are sometimes circumstances that end up in that, in that place. And he's even going to talk about that in a second. But what he says here is, let me be clear. If what you're thinking is, I'm going to get a divorce for spiritual reasons, like because I'm following Jesus, I'm going to divorce my spouse. Let's remember again what Jesus said. And there he's referring to things like Matthew 5.32. Where Jesus himself says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is very, very specific about that. And he doesn't really give any wiggle room. Now we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians 7 and we're almost done. He says in verse 12. To the rest I say, and then again, here's, here's, here's my gut feel on this. This is me, not the Lord. To the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he shouldn't divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. It's a very interesting thing he says. He says, if you're tempted to get a divorce because you're married to someone who isn't a Christian and you think um, it's actually a better, more spiritual choice to get out of this marriage, he goes, no, God doesn't want you to break your commitment. Keep your commitment. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married to you, stay married to them. And then he talks about the fact that the unbelieving husband has, there's this holiness that's transferred. Well, we know that's not talking about salvific holiness, right? I don't want to get too theological. It's not saying that a, that a believing wife makes an unbelieving husband a follower of Jesus just by the nature of their marriage or their children or whatever. What it is saying is that there is something in that relationship of a married person to an unbeliever in which you have the opportunity to have a consecrating influence, right? Does that make sense? There is a consecrating influence that you don't want to lose. That consecrating influence, that pull towards holiness is actually better than if you broke your commitment and walked away. So if you have an unbelieving husband that's willing to stay with you or an unbelieving wife that's willing to stay with you, stay because there is a consecrating pull towards holiness simply by your presence in the life of your spouse and of your children. Now I want to caveat that with this. If you're currently in a relationship where you are physically or emotionally or psychologically abused, you should get some distance. I'm not saying divorce, but I'm saying nobody should read a text like this and stay in a position where they're getting punched. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, get to a safe place, and then we figure out how to work out all the details from a distance. Does that make sense? Don't stay in a situation where, where you're in danger or your children are in danger. Get out of that, right? And we'll help you with that if you need help. Come and see me. But he says here, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, stay with them. Then he says this, and this is really interesting, verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Very interesting what he does in 15. Because in essence, what Paul does here is he expands and and kind of moves beyond the bounds of the teaching of Jesus. That might make you feel a little uncomfortable. But here's what I love that Paul is doing. What Paul is saying is we understand what the Lord has said. But there is a context in which if you're with an unbelieving spouse and they want to leave, you've been called to peace. And it might be that the most peaceful thing is to agree to that disillusion, to that divorce, right? If an unbelieving spouse wants to go, you can't, in the name of Jesus, require them to stay with you. Well, it's interesting that he says that because that's a clear, it's a clear contextualization for the church in Corinth in the first century. And what it points us to is the thing I want to finish with this morning. What I want to finish with this morning, there's a lot of specific things we kind of walk through it. There's going to be more next week. Please come back. I know you'll have a lot of turkey in your system. Come back next week to hear the second half of this chapter. But what I love most about 1 Corinthians 7 is not necessarily the specificity of it or the specifics. What I love is that Paul is pushing back on the church at Corinth to help them understand how to contextualize their followership of Jesus in their particular milieu or in their particular city at their particular time. Paul is advocating, and you hear it all the way through the section we studied today, he's advocating for them to take into consideration as they're figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus in their day and age, he's asking them to consider things like the potential temptation from Satan, right? Because there is Satan who's trying to tempt us, you want to put yourself in a situation where that temptation is negated. He says, consider temptation, consider your own giftedness. Some are called to marriage and some are not, right? Some have this gift and others have that gift. 
So take into consideration who you are and how God has made you, your giftedness, your passions, your desires. Those things matter. The people sitting next to you or across the aisle have not experienced the same things. They're not wired exactly like you. And so it's not apples for apples all the way across. To understand how to follow Jesus, you have to look at who he's made you to be. Right? Consider temptation, consider giftedness, passion, desires. The calling for all of us as followers of Jesus to peace. He's just referred to that here in the last note in 15. He's calling us to service and sacrifice, both of our bodies and of our sexuality. A sexuality that serves God and others. We have to take into consideration what Jesus said and did, right? So in the places where he goes, hey, this isn't me talking, it's the Lord. He's reminding us, we got to pay attention to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. As we're figuring out how to live as disciples, we have to think about the influence on other people. How will this be read by those who don't know Christ? We have to think about the revelation of Christ to other people. I love the fact that he's helping them to think about all these factors in determining how to live in their world. Because you know what, church? We got to do all that right here in Fullerton in 2022. I got I to gotta factor all those same things. When I'm trying to make a decision about where to go or what to do or how to interact or how, what my relationships look like, I got to think, what has Jesus said? What did he do? Who am I? How has God made me? What are my passions? What are my desires? What's my giftedness, right? I got to pay attention to all of these same things in order to figure out uniquely how to be the best disciple I can be right here and now. And there are times where I'm going to come to a conclusion and my conclusion will be wrong. Just like the church of Corinth said, some of us think the best thing to do is to make our spouses celibate by force. And Paul goes, ah, you're not thinking it all the way through. So we have to also be open to correction in that, right? Open to correction. That's the value of community. I think there's some great reminders for us here. But I want to close by saying this. I want to close by saying all of us who are trying to contextualize what it looks like to follow Jesus are making different kinds of sacrifices. And we always feel our own sacrifices. We, also, we, we always feel the ways in which we are laying down our lives for other people. We don't always feel the way other people are laying down their lives. And I, I want to speak specifically for a, sec, for a second to those in the room who desperately want to be married and aren't married. A, and you feel called to marriage, right? There are times where it may feel to you like the only place to find vulnerability and accessibility, and community, and affection, and love, and intimacy is in sexual interaction. And what this text tells us is that sexual interaction is one place to find those things, but Paul says that he is single and satisfied. What that means is that it is possible to find vulnerability, and intimacy, and affection, and community, and relationship apart from sexual intimacy until such time as you have sexual intimacy. Does that make sense? And the way in which that's intended to work is that the rest of us offer those things to those who don't have them. Does that make sense? That's where the body of Christ starts working together. So when, when married people who aren't feeling the pressure of that at all can invite single people into our homes, when we can have a Monopoly night or Settlers of Catan or whatever you do, right? When we can go on trips together, when we can spend time together and offer not sexual intimacy to these single people, but offer real community and vulnerability and love then what we do is we make it possible for them to experience those things, which they're built for just like we are, until such time as God opens the door for marriage for them, which they feel called to. That's our responsibility to walk alongside single people or people that are divorced or struggling. That intimacy and connection can happen in community. We just have to be committed to it together. Lots of stuff to think about today. I want to say, lastly, if any part of this makes you feel alone or it makes you feel grieved or angry, 
We want to pray with you. We want to walk beside you. Nobody, nobody carries any of this stuff by themselves. We carry it together because that's what the family of God is. And I don't think there's any weapons in 1 Corinthians 7. I think there is encouragement for each of us to figure out how to use our sexuality to serve God and our spouse, our one spouse. That's what our sexuality is intended to do. And I think he's clear in it. And, and it's an exciting call and a challenge to all of us, no matter where we're at or, or what our lives are like. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you even for the hard passages, the ones that are difficult to navigate or where we have the response to a letter without the original letter and we're doing our best to untangle what he's actually replying to. But so much of this is immediately relevant to the situation and the times in which we find ourselves where all of us are wrestling with relationship things and we're in different places and we're pulled different ways. Will you give us a deep love for you Will you give us a commitment to use our whole lives, including our sexual lives, in service of our spouse and God? We recognize that we are not our own. And will we also be aware and attentive to the needs of other people around us? And we're not going to satisfy those with sex, but we can satisfy those with love and compassion and community and longevity and commitment to one another in ways that the body of Christ is intended to function for the good of all and the glory of God. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.